This is the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Now please welcome your host, Ed McKnight. Hello and welcome along to the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight, and I'm here in the studio today with Karina Enake. Karina, how are you doing? Well, thank you. And I met Karina at the recent launch of the New Zealand Young Professionals podcast. I'd asked uh, all my friends who were coming along to bring one person who they thought was really cool, really interesting, um, who, who I should meet. And Adriana Christie, a friend of the show, invited Karina along. And I was so stoked that she did because within about the first five minutes of meeting you, Karina, I was like, you, you need to come on the show. You are <laughs> one of the most interesting people I've ever met. And you've got the most amazing story. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I can't wait to, you know, talk more about my background, what I do. Hopefully it's going to inspire some of your listeners. Oh, <laughs> absolutely no doubt about that. And Karina's got a really interesting background because she started in the business world, but then mm. transitioned into anthropology and is now taking, um, I'd almost say, quite a world-leading approach to applying anthropology, which is the, the study of humans. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so the study of humans <laughs> to business. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, I'd love to learn a little more about, about your background and how you got into anthropology or studying humans and um, all of that. Okay. So, um, my background, I'm originally from Romania, um, and I was part of that generation that grew up um, immediately after the fall of communism. So, of course, I had this huge burning desire to just experience other worlds and other cultures. And um, when um, I followed my education, I wanted to work in, um, initially, I wanted to do psychology, which is a bit closer to anthropology, but, but um, because psychology in Romania is not a very developed field, I ended up working in political science. So I studied political science, then I studied marketing. Um, and I, I started working my first job for Coca-Cola, who, is, um, who was at the time, Romania was the central Eastern European hub. So with Coca-Cola, I got exposed to working with different countries, working with different cultures, and also in the nature of my job, because being a small country in Eastern Europe, we got to adapt a lot of international campaigns, and we were always thinking, how can you adapt this to a local audience? So that kind of inspired me to um, leave the country and just see how it is to live somewhere else. Mm. Um, And I've been doing that in business for... I did it for 10 years all over the world. So um, I worked in Germany, Vienna, um, which is Austria. Then I moved to Brazil, Sao Paulo. Um, and in Sao Paulo, I kind of worked for this very kooky company who loved anthropology. Um, and actually, one of the founders of the company, he was a philosopher. And his first communication for his company, which was a direct selling beauty um, in um, beauty products like Avon, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but his first communication was an advertorial in a magazine talking about beauty and Aphrodites and ancient Greece. <laughs> so they loved anthropology um, and the ability of anthropology to kind of go deeper into human um, understanding. And that's how I got in contact with anthropology, fell in love with it and decided to kind of study it. And that took me to Amsterdam. Just, Where, just yeah. taking a step back to something you said about adapting international campaigns for mm-hmm. the Romanian market. How do you sell Coke to Romanians? Oh, how do you sell Coke to Romanians? Well, it's not that difficult because 
being, um, I think the countries in Eastern Europe and especially those that were under communism, for them, Coca-Cola is a symbol of American Americana, you know? So I think it holds inside of it um, everything that has to do with, you know, um, ideas around freedom, um, ideas around internationality. So it not, it's not just um, a beverage, you know, it's, it's a symbol of something else. So that's why um, when, when the communism wall fell, products like Coca-Cola that were not available before became available. But together with them also these ideas about freedom, um, internationality, all of that. So I think Coca-Cola at the beginning, they played a lot on that uh, and people were instantly drawn to it and also because of the price point, right? It was a, a foreign um, product that was available to buy for everybody, you know? Like it didn't matter how much money you earn, you could still buy a bottle of Coke and put it on your table at dinner and feel, you know, privileged. I love that, uh, you know, arguably a very unhealthy beverage mm. has been able to embed itself in the psyche of pretty much everybody in the world um, that it, it doesn't stand for um, what you might typically think it might, which is, you know, some sort of sweet beverage. Yeah. But it stands for some much wider um, societal trend, you know, yes. am- Americanism. And, yeah. you know, it's almost like uh, I was talking to somebody the other day about Hoover, the vacuum cleaner, mm. and how in America, you know, cleaning your floor is hoovering and that a product is able to embed itself in our psyche. I mean, does that play in both sides of anthropology and marketing? Yeah, I I think in a a way products, and we call it in anthropology material culture and, and products, they... When, when we connect to a product, it, it's always um, something that is embedded in that product, like a cultural habit um, that is drawing us to it. And I think some of the best marketing campaigns have been those that have managed to see and recognize that, like the meaning of the object, um, and take a beautiful campaign and talk about it, but, but really reflect that deeper meaning that that object holds to that, to that population. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Sometimes the meaning of the object is connected to its use. Um, like, for example, you take baby, baby milk um, or formula or powder, and then it talks deeply about the relationship between a mother, mother and her child and how a mother serves their child. And um, you could say that for these type of products, the, the meaning is it's very easy to see. But for a product like Coca-Cola that is inherently linked to Americana, it's not that easy. But then when you touch on it and you communicate it, you, you see immediately how people positively react to it because it's a deeper meaning that everybody has with that product, which we as anthropologists, we study it. So, for example, now I'm doing a project in WinTech when we're trying to understand um, in a classroom what are the meaning of the objects that the student and the and the, and the um, people in the class use to convey and um understand knowledge Mm -hmm. so then for example like uh, the desk that the teacher stands on that they speak to the students is an object that embodies authority and expertise so for example if you take that desk away it's a symbolic object if you take it away the teacher would not like it because you take his identity as a teacher away from him it's almost like an altar in the church right because the altar means much more than, the, than a piece of wood that is sitting there in that room. It's an embodiment of a higher presence. It's a symbolic object um, that people look at. And when they look at it, they see the symbolism. They don't see the object itself. So they see what it represents. That's, that's, that's amazing, really. And when you mentioned before about, and I, I didn't mean to get into all of this this early in the, in the, in the <laughs> podcast, but um, 
you, you'd mentioned before that uh, the the chief executive or whoever was running the um, company that you were a part of in Brazil was a philosopher. Mm-hmm. I, are you seeing this as uh, as a wider trend towards the arts? And the reason I um, I ask this is I know quite a few of our listeners mm. come from artistic backgrounds yeah. or you know have BAs or whatever. Um, and you know, sometimes wondering, oh gosh, how does this translate into the business world? But it almost seems what you're what you're saying is that arts is almost an advantage because it gives yes. you a completely different lens to yeah. uh, look at the world through. Yeah, I think I think successful businesses are businesses that are constantly looking into the meaning of things. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the meaning of my what's the meaning of my my product? What are the associations that people make with them uh, rather than just looking at data as data. And I think that people that come from arts background, they have a natural tendency to look for meaning just because of that background. And I think that gives them an advantage in business versus others that that don't naturally do that, you know? Um, but I definitely think, especially in categories today that are so crowded, you know, what draws people and keeps them in a product? And I think that today, especially in, in fast-moving consumer goods, there is this tendency from people to naturally distrust products. Like you go into supermarket and you see people choosing from a shelf of, I don't know, like milk or cheese, and they're reading the labels, but they're assuming that they're gonna be, there's something there that is not for them. You know, just the fact that that product is on that shelf in the supermarket is not a mark of trust because they simply already assume that the companies are there to cut the, to make the product worse so that they can make more money. So I think, um, I think in fast moving consumer goods right now, uh, companies that can show consumers that they do think about them, that they do have a deeper meaning behind that product, it is a very good uh, way to kind of gain trust and to keep it. Yeah. And if Coca-Cola is a company that is really good at embedding itself into wider trends, what's the difference between that and what Pepsi just tried to do with um, with the, did you see the advert with, what's her name, is it Kendall Jenner? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so what, what I mean, what, yeah. why didn't the Pepsi one work? Or, I mean, that's a big question um, yeah. that I'm sure many marketing execs are trying to figure out. But why is it that that one was ridiculed, mm. whereas the Coca-Cola is is um, taken and celebrated. Yeah. Well, I think that companies that are so big um, are also living inside a bubble. You know, I, 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 I often, when I was working in, in marketing and innovation in global roles, I always sat in meetings with executives discussing consumers or discussing higher trends, but for hours. But none of us was actually going outside talking to people. So we were sitting in a bubble discussing our own interpretations of what people would react to, what would they would find good or bad. And I think that ad is, a, is also an exemplification of that, of people building stuff in a vacuum and assuming that it's going to be awesome just because we think it's going to be awesome. But in fact, it's just a bunch of stereotypes glued together that show you, um, that tell you more about the people that, that developed it than about the people that actually buy it or see it, you know? So I think that's, and that's a problem with large corporations, I think. And in general, companies, as they grow, they become more silo. It's hard to get them outside on the streets talking to people, and then they become disconnected. And I think another one, companies like, I think Pepsi and Coca-Cola, both of them, they suffer from um, the fact that there's nothing inherently good in their product uh, that they can talk about. 
you know, Coca-Cola, when it started, it was a medicine um, and it was seen as something. It was it started in the time where people used medicine like cocaine was a medicine as well. You know, like that's when Coca-Cola had at the beginning in their formula cocaine and then they took it out. No. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. That's where it starts the name. No. If I, if I go on Wikipedia, will that, will that tell me it? I don't know if it says on their Wikipedia page, but... Um, they probably edited it out. From their history, like the, the beverage started as a medicine to calm you down. You know? Okay. It started as a medicine. Um, so they used cocaine to calm you down? Yeah. Was it cocaine? Yeah. Was it cocaine for calming you down? To calm the stomach down. Ah, okay. Do you okay. know? To calm the stomach down. And um, it, was sell- it was sold in like uh, apothecaries, you know, like in pharmacies. No so the way. original formula and the intent of the product were very different versus how they are today. Um, but at least at that time, it has a purpose that was embedded in a cultural narrative. So uh, today, when the whole of the world, or at least some parts of the world are obsessed with... Um, um, losing weight you know eating healthy stuff like there there's a very they don't have much narratives in the product that they can talk about so they they have become very good at talking about symbolism because symbolism is something that can still make them relevant and i think coca-cola had that very symbolic story just because of their distribution approach they started distributing the product everywhere so when not many american products were seen outside of u.s so they've built themselves so closely to the American um, narrative and the American culture that Pepsi didn't do that, you know? So I think whenever Pepsi tries to talk about culture, whenever Pepsi tries to talk about symbolism, they're not as credible. Okay. So it comes almost comes back down to, well, first, first of all, the ad that they didn't mm. really get out and understand, cool, we want this to speak to, uh, it, it seemed as if it was trying to speak to minority cultures, but they didn't go out you know, we're almost assuming in here in our in our podcast studio in Auckland that they didn't get out and speak to those minorities. Um, and so how was it ever going to work? Um, and secondly, that it never came from a credible source. Yeah, exactly. And I think these are the two things that you need to think about when you're building campaigns. Like, what is your ideology? What do you believe in as a company? Because nowadays you could argue almost anything. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you, you can never you can never say the same. You can never say the same relevant thing to everybody. So I think when you speak to your audience, know exactly what is your position, that what do you want to say about it, right? There's, there's no such thing as a universal, universal message because each culture is very specific. So, so I think that they, they didn't have a specific ideology that they wanted to talk about. Um, and I think, um, yeah, at the same time, they didn't really explore those minorities properly, I think. But it's a very charged topic that they addressed as well you know it's really hard to get it right especially if because you know as a brand and as a product you build up a history of rapport with people just like people do you can't reinvent yourself like i see i look at all this rebranding attempts and they all talk as if you can wipe the slate clean but you can't you can never do that like people remember how you used to be Mm. You it's know? like everybody still remembers telecom, even though I don't. I can't even remember when telecom rebranded as Spark, but yeah. everybody knows. Yes, so it's it's still part of your identity, right? So what what smart rebranding processes need to do is see what can be you know an improvement to what is already there, and what is the logic bec- behind that change? Because people remember and people look at you, and you're made up of all these separate things that you do. 
So I think, you know, if Pepsi doesn't have a history of talking about minorities as having a position around minorities, why would they do it today just like this randomly, you know? Mm, so you've got almost got to build it up so that you get to that big point. Yes. But you can't just go out and be like, no. boom, this is it now. Yeah, and, and be consistent. I mean... Brands are like people, you know, they build identities, they build, they, they build territories of relevance, um, but which, is, which is hard to understand when you are a brand manager sitting in an office and a brand manager that has sit on that position for one year or two, you know, like they can't grasp the, 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 the heaviness of that history and the relevance of that brand. They come in, you know, they say, oh, I want to make my mark on the company really fast. So it, so that's, that's, I think, one of the disadvantages of working in marketing because, and rotating really fast in between jobs and in between companies. Because you can't make that long-term change. Well, you don't understand that you can't make any short-term real change. Like everything that you do today is anchored in the history of that product. So if you choose to disregard that history, you won't have a positive impact. That's really interesting. So I guess suppose that the, the three things for, you know, say there's a young professional out there um, work, working in marketing, it's to, if you really want to embed your product into big ideas rather than talking about the, the benefits and the features of the product itself, first you've got to identify some of those, that symbolism that you want to attach it to. You've got to ease your way into it if you don't have the, um, the history to back that up mm. so that you're authentically getting into it. Uh, but then also you've got to go out and talk to the consumers or the, you know, yes. whoever's going to be, um, you, you want to convince about these um, wider issues. You've got to get out there and talk to them and make sure that you, what you're saying is actually um, resonating or speaking to them. Is, mm-hmm. is, that, is that kind of the three steps that you'd say? Yeah, I, I think so. But I think also you, when you go out there and talk to people about these ideas, you need to also talk to them about how they see your brand. Do they see your brand as being relevant to be a carrier for that message? Because, mm-hmm. you know, people... Like people, when they judge a, a brand's association with certain messages, they also have a feeling, does it fit that brand or not? Like, can they carry that message like proudly? Like, for example, Whitaker did a campaign around saving the kiwi birds with a kiwi egg. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was very interesting to, to see like a, a national brand of chocolate that is loved and has all that heritage around New Zealand, associate themselves with a product, with a, with a species, a bird. Was that Whitakers or? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I thought I remembered the gold, the gold of it. Yeah, and they, they, what they did is they did a campaign they, with the Easter egg, you know? Like the Easter egg, um, they did a campaign where you bought a specific egg and part of the funds were donated to, to um, save the kiwi birds. Okay. To hatch kiwi birds. And I think that was an awesomely good association because Whitaker's and both Whitaker the chocolate and the kiwi bird are so entrenched in, na- uh, in the national identity of New Zealand. So it's almost like an association between two giants. It's almost like if the All Blacks decided to save the kiwi birds, you know, yeah. that, that would also work. Because they're strong, they're both strong New Zealand brands. Okay, I see what you're saying, and we didn't mean to get into uh, into all of this marketing too early. Yeah. But um, I just want to circle circle back uh, to perhaps something we might, might we, we might have um, should have started with. But in your definition, obviously you're you're an expert in anthropology, um, and, and it's and it's a big long word. And whenever I think of it, I think of you know the Da Vinci Man and things like yeah. that. But I mean, for for our listeners out there who who are kind of like, okay, what what exactly is it? I mean, we said it's the the study of humans, but what does that really mean? Yeah, well, anthropologists they 
they um, they look at people that live in groups, you know, and they say that in order for us to live as a group, in any type of group, like with our friends, with our workplace, with our cities and, you know, countries, we define rules um, to live together and, and ways of going about things. So, for example... Um, when I moved to Germany um, from from Vienna, um, Germans don't like if you are late for meetings. Like it's a th it's a thing that you learn early on. So at the beginning, I was going into meetings and and people would just go away if I was late. I would find you know go go into a meeting and it was empty because I was ten minutes late. And then I moved to Brazil, um, and because I was living in Germany for so long, um, I was really educated myself to be on on time. And then the Brazilians hated it because all of them were late. So they were like, you're coming on time, which means you're making us feel bad because we're late. Whereas in their culture, coming late was almost so accepted. So these are like two little stories to sh about the same thing to show you that each culture, they have their own kind of customs, rules and regulations to go about life. And anthropologists are trained to understand these and where do they come from and um, how do people set all those rules um, about living together and what does it mean about the actions that they take. Mm, so it's, it's, if we say it's about the study of humans, it's not the human bodies, it's, about, it's more on culture, the cultural yeah. side. Yes, the human, humans in their culture. And that's the main difference between psychology where psychology looks at you um, with yourself. Um, whereas anthropology looks at humans in the context of their relationship with others. Um, and we do that by simply using a method called ethnography. So ethnography is the, 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 the practice of studying humans. Um, so you go out there in people in the groups and you observe them. You spend a lot of time with them, not just talking to them, but also observing what they do. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times when you, what, as anthropologists, we we see that the answers that you give are sometimes quite different from the actions that you take. And most of the times when we talk to each other, we have an idea behind why we say certain things, depending on who is listening. Or So if you, if you really want to understand somebody's actions, you don't just talk to them, but you also are there in their environment observing them. So it's kind of like uh, any, anybody who's ever done anything in sales and business will know that um, people will say that, oh, yeah, I want that product or, yeah, I'll buy that yes. or, yeah, I'd buy, I'd buy it if you did X yeah. and then you change your product to, to for what they said and then they don't buy it. No, um, I mean, yeah. And, and is that, those yes. are some of the questions that I'm sure, are, are you working on those? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, um, I'm doing now a project around the concept of debt. So for a financial service company that is trying to understand in New Zealand why people take on debt, um, loans, what is their relationship with money. And one of the interesting thing is that the financial service companies around here, they have a very, they assume that the people that are looking for money, um, what they need is the visibility of what is available. Right. So they need to know really fast what type of services there are there that they can access when they need money. And that's a very um what, what that means is that they invest a lot of money in advertising to shout, we have money, we have money, come here if you want money, you know? Um, and if you take the time to understand why people look for money, you see that, for example, debt in the New Zealand culture is stigmatized. People don't want to be seen as looking for debt um, because it's not something good, it's something bad. There are two sides to the debt. One is what you can do with all of the money that you get and what it means for you to pay it back. 
And all of these companies that just shout, you know, here I am with money, you know, and you can get the house of your dreams or you can go on a holiday for 20K. They never talk about the, the other side. They never talk about what it means to pay it back. And they never kind of talk to people that are worried about that in parallel to wanting to get the money. And that makes for very poor retention, you know? Like get, they get a lot of awareness and exposure, but they get very low conversion rates to people actually take on loans. They don't understand. So how can I optimize that, you know? And without, without giving too much away, how, how do you start... You know, in that example, like how do you start taking that anthropological perspective or this observing humans yeah. and implementing that to business? Well, in this particular topic with finances and money is difficult because it's a stigmatized topic. So people don't really want to talk about it. They, it because it's also a judgment associated with it. Right. Like even with the people that you have around you, do you really go on talking about your financial decisions or health? No. So this is a very specific topic, which is quite difficult to approach because, as I said, people don't they don't they don't want to talk about it naturally. Yeah. And when they talk about it, they do it very shortly and very, you know, like and as for an anthropologist, you want to go deeper. You want to understand their motivation. So so what we did in this particular case is. On one side, trying to understand, to, to capture those people when they are in the moment of getting a good debt. So what, what is a good debt in the New Zealand culture is associated with a purpose of investment. So mm -hmm. for example, debt for finishing education, debt for buying a house. These type of debts are debts that people feel easier to talk about because they're culturally accepted um, places of getting money. Mm-hmm. Right, so people like that or natural disasters. Somebody stole my car. Somebody broke into my house. So it's not my fault that I have to take on debt. Mm -hmm. It's a natural disaster that occurred, and I need it. So it's a good debt in the sense that that I feel comfortable talking about it. So um, we've identified a few people that um, are suffering for good debt and that are open to talk uh, to me about it. And what we're going to do is talking to them about what that is to them, but also following them through a process of looking for a loan. Okay. It's kind of interesting. And I almost wonder if the internet has also played into it. So for example, and, and where I'm working, um, we are currently working with a mortgage broking firm mm. and they say, they've said, look, digital has completely changed it because whereas pre-internet, Mm. You had um, the phones would just start ringing nine mm. o'clock on a Monday morning. The reason being that everybody was out at barbecues on a Saturday evening and they'd start talking about it because yeah. there was no other source um, to learn about um, f finances mm. and mortgages because nobody else talked about it unless you're among close friends. And yeah. so somebody would talk about it on Saturday, bam, nine o'clock, the phones would start ringing off the hook. Um, and I also wonder, as, as well as that, it's stigmatized that now we can almost hide our shame by. <laughs> <laughs> turning on private browsing or whatever uh, on, on our phones and just start start looking wherever we are. Yeah. And so maybe we do have to, um, you know, I can understand why a, more, uh, a debt company at the moment would um, feel like they needed to shout. Yeah. Well, I think for me, shouting, like, for example, with this particular company, um, I've signed in, I've signed in um, on their website and I got already eight emails. And when did you, when did you sign in? Like what period? A few are we days ago. Oh, wow. So that's, and I think with banks is the same thing. I've, I've made it like a trial account on a bank and I, you get the same kind of like really pushy marketing messages. And for me, like um, 
marketing is when you get annoyed with when marketing is too intense, that means that user experience is not too advanced. So I think marketing comes when you haven't managed to develop a very good UX platform of your own product so that the product itself learns about you and changes with you mm-hmm. so that you don't have to send those marketing messages. Yeah, and just for, for people at home, UX is? User experience. So user experience is a practice that kind of helps digital products understand their users um, so well um, and become attuned to the way they browse or the way they use their product so that they don't have to pick up the call, the, the phone and call customer service when they don't know something. Or, um, you know, they don't have to drop out of a transaction and get marketing messages sent at them. Oh, why did you drop out? Come back, you know? So user experience helps you build a seamless navigation um, route for customers so that they just simply learn as they do it, you know, rather than having to activate other buttons of, of that product online. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, you have just given me the best <laughs> idea. So we're, um, I, I think I always mention on the podcast, but uh, so I work for a digital digital agency and we're mm. currently working with um, a vacuum cleaning brand and we were doing the, um, the wire, technical term is wireframes, um, but mm-hmm. for, for people at home, that's just like drawings of, of the user experience. So trying yeah. to design that user uh-huh. experience. Um, and we were talking about how... Um, when your when your vacuum's broken and you're trying to find a new part for it, like how do you go about that? Mm. Um, and uh, we, we were having some quite in depth conversations just last week. And over the weekend, um, my my girlfriend's parents' um, vacuum uh, has a broken part, and I was trying to find out, okay, how do I find that part online? Mm. Um, and so what I'm going to do now is I'm probably tomorrow morning going to pick up my girlfriend's mum's vacuum, take it into work, give it to the designers, and be like, try and find the part on the current site, and this will teach you how yeah. what the experience is like when you've got a broken vacuum yeah. and you want to fix it. Yes. And you know, that's... I'm going to write this down because this is genius. Yeah, and, and that's the key, you know, like I think, and we all naturally do it. Like I've sat into meetings where people um, talk about the user experience by talking about through their own experiences as consumers, mm-hmm. which I think it's not bad. We naturally do it. But then when you come to thinking about your customer, it's more, it's not as natural to go out there and talk to them or to watch them as they go through a flow. Um, which is what we're trying to do with this particular company to actually be with people in Mm -hmm. the moment that they are going through an application rather than talking to them on the phone um, or asking them questions in a survey. Because when you are next to them, you can understand better somebody else's experience as they go through something um, and and go out of your own personal experience because your own personal experience is good, but it's also quite limiting to you, right? Mm, Because it's only what you've experienced yourself and you're not all people or you're not necessarily your target market. Yes. So I think the best way to start a user experience is by doing observation, participant observation, which is what anthropologists are very good at. Mm -hmm. You know, just going out there, seeing to sit, stay, stand next to people and just go with them as they go through a process of discovery, asking questions and trying to understand why they do certain things, yeah. But I think in this particular point with financial services, um, I think the, the problem becomes actually deeper because you have to be able to think through as a company, you know, I mean, in, in the New Zealand culture, um, debt is something that is strongly um, not okay, you know, like I, I, I was sitting on a call with a financial service advisor from the government and they were trying to, to 
because I, I wanted to understand what is the culture of the country, right? So yeah. what is the discourse of New Zealand? What, what does New Zealand tell to their citizens that is a good financial behavior, right? So I was calling um, the financial advisor services of the government to, to inquire that. I was, I was taking myself, you know, and my um, alone needs and talking about them to an advisor. And they were telling me, well, you know, you need to start from the, from the point of not having debt at all because debt is bad. You can't look at the money without looking at your efforts to pay them back. So they were telling me that. So, so. this is the, yeah, so I suppose this is the messaging from prob- probably most government agencies, actually. Yeah, here, right? Because in, 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 in the um, US culture, it's completely different. For them, debt is actually quite good because debt means that you're accelerating your future path. Um, if you don't have a credit score, that means that it's something bad going on with you. So you have actually a bad assessment if you don't have credit. Hmm. Um, and in US, there is this discourse around the democratization of capital and the fact that even if you're living under a bridge, you can still get a credit card. Mm. So I think that's very different from, uh, from New Zealand. And I think when you are in this market, you need to understand the cultural discourses of the country. And, uh, and it's also a culture of self-reliance and responsibility. So people here, they, they don't want to be reliant on somebody else. They want to make sure that they solve their own shit you know like or their own problems to yeah, be honest. Yeah, yeah. let me ask you one question yeah. because we i totally understand like yeah sit next to your customers see what they're going through mm. how do you make sure that you're not going to influence their behavior as the um like i'm sitting next to a customer they're going through one yeah. of the the sites we've built or one of the wireframes or something along these lines how do i make sure that i'm not going to influence what they're doing just by just by sitting next to them because mm. they might change yeah but, but i think there are two things one keeping your mouth shut um because I think a lot of marketeers, they go, and I, I've been one of those marketeers myself. You go into a customer in, um, interaction and you just want them to tell you what you already know. You know, because you've been going through this marketing process of innovation and you've been at, grown attached to your idea and you don't want them to trash it. You want them to um, enforce it. So then you ask leading questions. You ask questions that would kind of validate what you already think rather than asking to change it and by asking those kind of questions people want to please you right so you're influencing them just because of that so i think one thing that can help you not influence is just not ask too many questions and just observe i think first um, and i think the second one is um asking questions about their behavior but not in a way that leads to judgment trying to understand and, and really try to understand why do they do the things that they do as they go through a process. And I think the second one is also very difficult for people that are not trained at it because you, you, you assume that what they do um, is normal um, and you just ask questions that validate really fast rather than open-ended questions where you're just questioning the behavior. Why are you doing this? So what does it mean for you, you know? Mm. I like um, it. And... Just because I, I realize that we haven't mentioned it, what do you want to just talk a little bit about um, your, your company and what it actually does? Yeah. We've gone through all the examples of like how you go through it, but you know, do you want to talk about that? Yes. So um, my company, um, well, I do applied anthropology. Normally anthropology is done within an academic space and we spend a lot of years studying human behavior and then 
coming back and um, present it back to academia. So my company takes that approach and applies it to business. So um, I do applied um, anthropological research. Applied meaning that it's still it's still a process that is longer than normal qualitative research here. Uh, meaning that none of my processes are 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 let's say shorter than a month. But still, that for academic, where the minimum unit is one year, <laughs> it's still quite short. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do um, human behavioral analysis inside companies and outside companies. What do I mean by that, inside companies? Meaning human behavior for business has two major components. One, understanding the human behavior of the people that are inside your company, your employees. You know, how do they go about their job? What are the processes that they use? What's the organizational culture? How can you build a happy employee, um, right? So that's one area. And the second area is the human behavior outside of the company is the behavior of your own customers. How do they, how do they respond to your innovations, to your products? How do they respond to your brand? Um, yeah, Stuff like that. Um, So, for example, um, taking the first one, um, I just finished a project with PwC on flexibility at work, where they were kind of they were they were trying to understand what flexibility means to the culture of PwC, how Mm -hmm. how their employees use flexible working, um, and we've spent a few weeks in in two of their teams. So we went in, we had our own desk, <laughs> our own access card. Um, me and my partner, we were there from, you know, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Um, observing people, but also interviewing them. And then at the end, we, we wrote an analysis around the topic of flexibility. I had another project like that in Amsterdam where um, I spent um, almost a month in a company, uh, in a tech company, trying to understand their culture as a team and how do they work together, what makes them happy, what makes them unhappy. Um, um, and then at the end, um, advised the, the two CEOs um, on how to design procedures that would make the work flow easier. Yeah, and, and with customer innovation, we do a similar process. Um, I think with customer innovation, recruitment is a bit more difficult because you need to find those people that you will talk to, that you will observe. Uh, normally, when you do that inside of a company, they cannot immediately give you access, right? But mm. w- with customers, it's not that easy. You have to find a way to... And if the company it doesn't have a, how do you say, a well-oiled relationship with their own customers, it's very difficult to reach them because they're not used to it, right? If they normally reach their customers by employing an agency to do focus groups or surveys, they don't know how to reach people and be with them in real life. Yeah, that totally makes yeah. sense. And let me let me ask you this as well. Um, does it really come back to empathy at its core? That it, it seems like a lot of what you're talking about is yes. you know you're trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, and that's probably almost a cliche of what you're talking about because it's not theoretically putting yourself in somebody's shoes. It's like almost literally, literally yeah. going through the process. Yes, yes, it definitely comes back to empathy. And I remember my first. Um, when I was in my first class of anthropology, I had this thought running through my head and I started laughing in the middle of the class. And, uh, and um, you know how in poker you, had that, you have that saying that you, you play the opponent, you never play your cards? Mm-hmm. Do you know, which means that coming back to business, it doesn't even matter how good your product is because what it matters is that you have a deep understanding of the people that use it. It's much more important to understand the person um, rather than understand the product. 
It's the same it. as in poker because it doesn't matter what your hand is. It just matters you being able to read how the other one reacts to you. Mm, I love this. And I just had another idea that I'm going to run into, the, into, the, into work tomorrow and um, implement is that I, I've mentioned previously on the podcast, I, I think I talked to you about it that night we launched the podcast, that um, at the recent Leadership New Zealand's Dinner with a Difference, mm. They gave us cards yeah. with a with a photo of somebody and some descriptors, mm. you know, and it was like Kamal thirty two. Um, this this guy had um, was it a, like a master's degree in like computer science or something along yeah. these lines, and but was working as a taxi driver because his his uh, qualifications weren't recognised in New Zealand, yeah. and we had to try and put ourselves in his shoes and be him for the night. Yeah. And I, if the question is, how can we be more empathetic right now? You know, something I could do for, for my um, UX designers, user experience designers um, tomorrow morning is write, make cards. If, say, for the vacuum company, uh, you know, it might be, yeah. um, you know, this person's name is, is Sandra. She's yeah. 52. Yeah. She's got a five-year-old vacuum and three kids. You know, is that some, is, you know, is that an example of something that listeners could take away and run and do that? I mean, it's not, totally what you're what you're saying because it's not actually getting out and talking to customers but could that be a good first step hmm. that's that's a tricky one honestly because if you're impersonating somebody you know you're impersonating mm-hmm. so you're still projecting a lot of your own interpretation of who sandra is and what sandra does um on the actual um um person mm-hmm. so i would say i would be even a bit more radical and say like can you actually do it? Can you, you know, just go to a store and pretend, not pretend, but actually volunteer there for a day and do that person's job, even swap jobs with somebody for one day? Can, could you do that in your line of work and with your product? Is it difficult to do it? Uh, like, for example, with this, with a vacuum cleaner, could the guy that is the UX designer actually... Um, work in a store for one day. So we could send him to Briscoe's or yeah. whatever and be like, you've got to work in the vacuum yes. section and and observe customers. Yes. Or, yeah, and actually work there, actually be one of their customer representatives because then you're not a UX designer observing, but you're actually somebody that has to interact with people, has to interact from a perspective of customer care. But for some types of lines of work, this is very difficult to get that job to get that swapping happening because you know you have to go through training or you know it's not that easy but then what is the next best thing that you could do that you put that person in a as close to a real life situation where they are where they need to perform from that identity a, a second um a, an, an idea towards that would be looking at their lives or the lives of their network you know, like like you were saying earlier with your girlfriend, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's a situation in real life. So if you take the UX design, say, go home and look at your vacuum cleaner <laughs> or somebody, your mother's vacuum cleaner, does it need repair? Or Like, how can you get your real life mm-hmm. to, to reflect that? Yeah. You know, take your vacuum cleaner, take it to the store or, you know. Because some- otherwise it's just purely theoretical and you're, you're guessing. You're guessing. You know? And it's always your mind that, that puts you in a place where it just wants to validate their own perceptions. Like that's, that's the human nature, right? We want we, we, we to validate what we already know because we don't like to be in a space of not knowing. So only experience teaches us new things. So I think, how can you put the person in a place of real experience? Mm. 
it, either it being a small experience or a big experience, but you can't avoid the space of that experience because as real as it is, as more rich it is with data for you to take back. Mm, so I suppose if the question is, you know, how can we be more empathetic right now, rather than taking small steps, which I guess was my suggestion, which is take a card and just pretend to be this person, go for what the ultimate is, which is literally sit next to them, go through it. And if you can't do that, ta- you know, what's the next best thing? What's the next best thing after that? That's a real experience. Yeah. Mm, just to really try and, and understand it. And, and, and then write the card about it. You know, I think cards are really good, mm-hmm. but they are a placeholder for, for knowledge, right? And, and Unless you have the knowledge, the card is useless. Hmm. I love this because it's, it's, I can see how this is kind of scary. Um, if, you know, as a marketer myself, I'm like, okay, this is kind of scary because I'm not doing a lot of this stuff. Mm. But I think the opportunity is mm. so large to be like, how can we, um, how can our, our products or what we say about them or our, what we yeah. say about our services be even more embedded and actually mean something to um, the people buying them? Yeah. You know, I think that's, or, you know, how can we serve these people even better? Um, I, I was listening to a podcast just yesterday and uh, they said, oh, I don't like to think about money. In my mind, money is just a reward for providing value to somebody. And I love that because mm-hmm. the question is, well, how can we make out what we what we do um, with, with at work, what we do with our lives? I don't even, I'm trying to not to use the word products or services. How can we make those even more valuable? And then the money will come if, if they're yes. more valuable, right? Yeah, yeah. But you just need to understand where do people place their value? And that's, I think it's a tricky one. And also, if you are working in an environment that is very conservative, but you want to do things differently, the whole environment would not help you, you know, like, especially if you're early stage. And I remember, like, I don't know how many, because this is a podcast for young professionals, right? Mm -hmm. Which automatically means that you're at the beginning of the career, you know, trying to build. um, So I think one of the challenges when you are as a young professional is finding that balance between experimenting, but following what your mentors or elders tell you that you should do. You know, it, that's a very tricky balance because, because you could, you know, be experimenting with everything um, and that can give you a brand of arrogant or, you know, like not really um, following other people's advice mm-hmm. that have been there, done that. Um, but at the same time, if you're not experimenting, you can't do things differently mm-hmm. when, when they are entrenched in traditionalism, conservatism, you know? Mm, I suppose, but there is an, I can imagine that if I was a a young professional marketer in a a corporate, Mm. um, whereas I work for quite a small business, um, in a corporate, you can almost, there's almost less risk, you know, because you could say to to your managers or whatever, I want to take one day out to to go and spend, spend that, you know, working at Briscoe's to really observe people and report back on that because the cost of you doing that is far less than one of the yeah. senior executives doing it. And I, I think if you pitched it right, um, and I'd have to sit next to next, sit next to them when they're pitching it to really understand whether this assumption is right or not. But I feel like a, a senior marketer would, you've got to be pretty impressed with, with a young professional coming to you with these kind of big ideas or new ways of looking at things. Yeah, I think so. And it, it But it also comes down to personality, right? You've you got to have that personality that is willing to put that question forward or put that um, pitch forward to your manager rather than expecting knowledge to come from the manager to you. Because if you put that pitch to the manager, you're also taking on the responsibility of going out there but bringing something valuable back, right? So it's a responsibility saying, oh, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to see something and I'm going to build value and bring it back here to you, my boss, 
rather than expecting, well, I'm here as a young professional. You tell me first how to do things right, and then I'm going to do them. So, I mean, if you have that mindset um, and you're out there experimenting, it's it's the best. Um, but if you don't have that mindset, um, I think it's 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 tricky. You have to have actually the right manager that that it, it's putting you in that situation and challenging you. You know. Mm, well, I guess that's that's a whole other podcast about how to be bold and how to uh, get yeah. your ideas across in in the corporate workplace. But look, this has been. Absolutely. So interesting. I I just love talking about this stuff because it, it comes back to how can we do, you know, if we're serving our customers, how can we do it the best possible mm-hmm. way? And I, I totally believe that the arts and anthropology is, or you've convinced me that arts and anthropology are one of the best ways, if not the best way I currently know about how to do that. Um, just in terms of, um, is there any kind of last thoughts you wanted to share with um, the young professional audience? Mm. Oh, <laughs> the answer can be no. We can just edit this out. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just thinking. I, I, I think one advice that I would say: look for what excites you. You know, like for example, for me, um, it took me a long time to to realize that my best work came from stuff that inspired me personally. You know, um, and I think anthropology it inspired me, and then I used it, and then I became better at what I did, and my reputation grew, and I ended up doing so many amazing things. When in the moments of my career that I didn't follow what excited me, and I kind of followed a more standardized route, I ended up doing mediocre work, and I was not really happy with what I was doing at the time. And I think even if the if the things that excites you are a bit crazy or not normal around you, still do them. Because like, I think that's the best way to, um, to build amazing work and grow your reputation where mm-hmm. you go where your energy takes you. Yeah. I love that so much. And Karina, if anybody wants to track you or the sweet spot down, how, how, would, they, how would they do that? Well, my website is called yeah, like that, um, www.sweetspot.com with a dash after, um, after T-H-E. Um, I'm also quite active on LinkedIn. Mm. So you're very speedy at replying to LinkedIn messages. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I, I love LinkedIn. So, you know, if anybody um, searches me up on LinkedIn, sends me a message. And I'm also, um, I love mentoring um, other young people. Um, I'm, I, I give a lot of my time to mentoring. So if anybody wants to ask me a question or just to have a coffee, discuss some challenges that they have, I'm super open. Oh my gosh, I might have to take you just up on that. Just send me a message. And, yeah. and just, just so that people can search you on uh, LinkedIn, I'm going to try and remember how to, how to spell your name. It's Karina Enake, uh, yeah. C-O-R-I-N-A-E-N-A-C-H-E. That's it. There we go. But of course, it'll also be typed <laughs> in, in the episode um, title anyway. Yes. Look, Karina, it has been so wonderful sitting down with you and I really do appreciate it. Uh, you've been listening to the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight. Uh, and if you've liked the sound of what we've talked about today, check us out online. We are www.nzyoungprofessionalspodcast.com. Also check us out on Facebook, NZ Young Professionals Podcast, uh, or hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app. If you're in iTunes, please do give us a review. I read absolutely every one of them, and uh, I will send you a very grateful message. It really helps with getting the show out. Until next time. The New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, hosted by Ed McKnight and brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand.